want to talk to you about shopping. Yeah, you think I'm joking, eh? But have you ever been into a mall, maybe? Have you ever been the recipient of, like, a person who knocks on doors and has a really enthusiastic sales pitch, and you're just like, you know, as soon as they start talking, that you're not interested. But they just keep going, and you can't, like, they don't read your body language, and you just feel like saying, just save your energy for someone who's going to buy it. Maybe they'll tell you that you have really nice hands, and would you like to buy some overpriced hand cream from the Dead Sea? Or maybe it's a vacuum cleaner that you don't need. Um, but have you ever had that experience and you, you can't even get a word in to say, no, it's okay, don't worry. Or maybe ladies, have you ever been shopping and just seen like the perfect pair of shoes or a stunning dress and just been like, oh my gosh, I've got to have it. Maybe you pull it off the rack and twirl it around or, I don't know, take a mirror selfie and send it to your friends. Start daydreaming a little bit about, oh, I could wear this at this event. It would go perfect with these shoes. I know just the accessories to wear with it. And then you just flick over the price tag and you try not to let out a gasp. And then if you're like me, I would gap it out of that shop. Like my mum was yelling like, run, Forrest, run. Because you know that A, your husband probably wouldn't like that dent in your checkbook. But you just don't kind of value it as much anymore. Or if you're like me, and you find out something, the price of something, and it's maybe a little bit expensive. And I do it, but I don't know if you do it too. You start thinking about all the things, the other things that you could buy with that amount of money. Like, like say a TV. My husband's been looking at TVs. And so what goes through my head is, that's like a month's groceries for our family, or that's this, this number of weeks rent, or that's a good dent in a new car. And then suddenly, when you weigh it up, that thing doesn't quite mean so much to you anymore, and you, maybe you don't quite need it as much as you first thought you did. But that's because value determines cost. You don't value that thing enough to pay the price that is being asked. Because um, nobody would pay 50 or or $100 for a toy that you knew was from the dollar shop, right? because you don't value it enough to pay that much. And so if value determines cost, then what is value? Well, the dictionary will tell you that it's the importance, the worth, or the usefulness of something. And so everything has value, whether it's inherent, or whether we place the value on the object, or even person ourselves. Everything has value, but how much? Who or what determines the value of something? If you think about it. What makes something valuable? What gives it significance? What makes people want to buy it? What makes people want to spend time with that person? Is it dependent on the situation? Because one man's trash is another man's treasure. You've all heard that saying before. And something that is valuable to you will mean nothing to somebody else. There's lots of factors that determine the value of an object. There's desirability, is it coveted or sought after by people, like an iPhone. You know, people are just itching to get the latest update, the latest iPhone. And sometimes I wonder, like, is it even that much different to the last one? But it's that desirable that people will go out and buy it as soon as it comes out. 
accessibility. Is this object rare or is it just something you could find anywhere? Is it antique? Because antiques are valuable. You see people on the programs that my grandmother used to watch taking their old stuff to the antiques roadshow to see if it's worth anything. But mass-produced toys that you can get anywhere are less valuable. And then there's the beauty or the condition of it. Has it stood the test of time? Has it been well looked after? Does it still work? And also the potential. What value could that thing have in years to come? So these are just some of the factors that determine value. Um, take this dollar coin, for example. I did a bit of research, and it's made out of an aluminium bronze alloy. I was like, OK, doesn't sound very expensive to me. Well, who says that this is worth a dollar? If I went and found some aluminium bronze alloy and made my own coin, could I take it down to the dairy and buy a bag of lollies? Probably not. Because the people at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand didn't say that my coin was worth a dollar. But this one is. It just it lets us buy a soft serve cone or a stamp, and it's worth a dollar because they said it was. But if I took that coin to Europe, I couldn't go to their dairy and buy a bag of lollies because it has no value to them. Because there's two different kingdoms or countries in this case, and what is valuable in one means nothing in the other. And the same is true of the world and the kingdom of God. Because in Luke... Uh, chapter 16, Jesus was talking to a bunch of people who had a real love of money. And um, in verse 15, it says, What people value highly is detestable to God. Not even just like he doesn't like it that much. It's detestable. It's pretty extreme. Because there's two different kingdoms or countries, and what is valuable in one means nothing in the other. What the world values is detestable to God. It's a massive difference. And in this scripture that I just mentioned, it's in reference to money, but it tells us a principle that each kingdom has its own set of factors for determining value. So we are citizens of the world, and the world places a lot of value on usefulness and demand. If you're of no use to me, then I don't want anything to do with you. If you are not doing a good job, then get fired. If things in our home are not of use to us anymore, we spring clean and we throw it out or we donate it to somebody else who might need it. If your spouse is no good, then the world would say to get a divorce. But as Christians, we are God's children and so part of his kingdom. Which leads us to the question, what does God value? How do we know how God determines value? What's important to him? And in all situations, we can look to his word. And in Bible, repetition is really, repetition is really, repetition is really important. If something is talked about repeatedly, then it has significance. And what I notice is repeated a lot in the Bible is love. Pastor Craig talked last week about two things that have their own entire chapter of the Bible dedicated to them. One was the F word, faith. If you weren't here last week, then go and listen to Podbean. And the other one was love. Love has a part to play in deciding how much value something has. In the love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it talks about love, obviously, 
but it also talks about things that will pass away and things that will remain. Things that don't matter will pass away, but it says that three things remain, faith, hope, and the greatest of these is love. The world will say that money and possessions and status and a great career and the latest technology are important and advertising will tell you that you need those things to be happy. But those things will all pass away. But the Bible says that love remains. Love drives value in the kingdom of God. Love is what is important to God. And love is what forms relationships and connection. It also gives things um, sentimental value. My mom lost her wedding ring and she was so upset and she searched everywhere for it. Um, after days and weeks and months she still couldn't find it and her and my dad got married when they were very young and so they didn't have a lot of money at the time and she said to me in tears, Anna, it was, wasn't really worth much, it was probably only worth $50 but that ring meant the world to me. And after months of not finding it, she finally decided to buy a new one. It took her ages. I was like, Mom, why don't you just buy a new one? Because it didn't mean that much to me. And it was a considerably more expensive one. But she said it just wasn't the same. They lived in Australia at the time, and she happened to be packing, I think, to come back to New Zealand to visit. And she slid her hand into a small pocket of her suitcase and out came her wedding ring. She was so happy, she rang me up and was like, I found it, I can't believe it. She was like, oh, praise the Lord. But now she had two rings. <laughs> and you know, she always still wore the cheaper one. Not because it was more prettier or more expensive or more valuable in monetary terms, but because my dad gave it to her. Someone that she loved very much. And that gave that ring, that $50 ring, more value than any ring on the planet. Sorry. Some people would have discarded the cheap ring because there was a more expensive, maybe prettier replacement. But love drove the value of that cheap ring up so much that the other one didn't matter anymore. It is love that drives value up more than any other factor. And John 3.16, you will have heard it a million times and you probably know it off by heart, but God, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Love drives value. It is love that caused God to send his son. God loves us, so that gives us value. That gives you value. And we love God in return. So that gives him value in our lives. And as Christians, we are citizens of two kingdoms. You know, we were born into this world, we dwell on the earth. Um, but as Christians, we also are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so in that we have a decision to make. What set of factors are we going to let decide what we value in our lives? Is it what the world says, that it's all about money and possessions and having the latest things? Or is it what God decides is valuable by love? So I just want to leave you with that, that there are two kingdoms 
and we get to decide how we value things. And God's value is through love. Because for God so loved you and me and everybody, the whole world, that he gave his one and only son. So tag on to Maddie. I really wanted to come up here and tell like the worst, most embarrassing story about my dad possible because it's been 11 years of just him telling stories about me like every week. But no, I'm not going to give him the satisfaction, guys. No, I'm just going <laughs> to. Instead, I'm going to tell a story about how much I hate the supermarket. Um, I hate going to do the groceries. It's the most boring, mundane task in this whole entire world. I've hated it ever since I was younger. I was like, I remember from the ages of like five to seven, I think, would go every Thursday afternoon, but I have to go to pack and save to do the weekly shop, and I was over it. As soon as we did the underground parking, I'd run up the ramp because I was five. I was like, let's get this over with mum. I got cartoons to watch. And so I would go through, and then I'd just be like, mum would like, would get through. I'd push the trolley for a little bit, you know, because I'm like a strong kid and my, I can do it. So I'm pushing the trolley, get through fruit and vegetables, and my, Yep, this is the boring part. Mum, don't pick up the cauliflower. That's disgusting. And just push it through the trolley and then we get to the meat part. And that's all right because, you know, ham's delicious. So we're like, yeah, let's get some ham. That's good. And then the best part of the trip, the bakery. Because the bakery had vanilla cupcakes. And everyone loves a good cupcake. Like vanilla cupcakes, pink icing delicious. So every time we'd go to the supermarket, my mum would bribe me to not have a tantrum in the middle of pack and save on the floor crying with a cupcake. So I would just walk around eating this cupcake through the supermarket and my, oh, what a great time. I love going grocery shopping because I valued the cupcake enough that I was willing to pay the price of going to the supermarket with my mum. I believe that that's the same story with Jesus. We want to follow close enough to get the cupcake, but sometimes Going to the supermarket isn't worth it, you know? It's like in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. In Luke 9, 10 to 17, it tells of, like, yeah, he multiplies all this fish, all this bread to feed all these people. And it's an amazing thing. And they go home, they're stuffed, there's 12 baskets of leftovers. It's this amazing miracle. But what happens after they're filled up from dinner, they wake up the next morning and they're hungry again. So they need to go looking for Jesus, you know. He gave them some free brew, bread. And, you know, I want some free, like, eggs benedict or whatever, you know, like maybe some omelets in the morning. That's a real good vibe. So I just want to wake up. They go looking for Jesus. They're like, Jesus, where's my free food? And Jesus just straight up denies him. He's like, no, no more free bread, guys. And this leads the people to find out, like, Jesus to find out how much the people, like, valued Jesus, how much they value. If they weren't giving, if there was no more free bread, did they really want to follow him anymore? So it says, yeah, but Jesus, sorry, yeah, so they want to be close enough for the teaching, close enough to see the miracles, close enough for the free bread, close enough for the cupcake, but they don't want to have to go do the grocery shopping to earn it. Does Jesus cost them anything? Are they really committed to him? Are they willing to sacrifice? Later on in Luke 9, in verse 57, it tells the story of Jesus is walking down a road with the disciples, and it says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
I will follow you wherever you go. I feel like that's talking a massive game. He's saying he'll follow him wherever. He'll follow him without reservation. He'll follow him to the ends of the earth, wherever it means. He'll follow him wherever. And Jesus' reply in verse 58 says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is pointing out to the man how uncomfortable following Jesus is. He's not even going to have a place. He's going to be homeless. He's not even got a place to live if he goes to follow Jesus. And I believe that this is one of the biggest things we come to deal with when following God. It's the call, yeah, the call of Jesus is in direct conflict with our desire to be comfortable. Yeah, it says, yeah, by nature, humans, we're all comfort seekers. You know, because on a Saturday morning, when you wake up and it's cold and raining in the middle of winter, the first thing you're thinking is in, let's go for a walk on the beach. Or, <laughs> you know what's a great day to do? Let's go and go to the gym, you know, let's do a good morning class, 6 a.m., cold raining. No, the first thing you do is cancel all your plans if you have any. You probably don't, but you'll cancel them if you do. And then you'll just stay in bed all day, watching TV, eating some snacks, and you're like, oh, this is a great time. What a great time. That's my Saturday hobby. I'm not even kidding. Sleeping till 11 a.m., just watching Netflix on my laptop and eating some snacks, and it's a great time. So, yeah, it's all about the comfort. But the truth is, my bed represents comfort, but the cross represents sacrifice. So it's two, yeah, it is two very different images. And Jesus in this story, he wasn't going out recruiting people with blankets and pillows like, come on, let's have a good old nap. It'll be a great time. This is what it's like following me. You get to sleep. <laughs> no, he said to pick up your cross and follow him. When you think about your relationship with Jesus, what do you picture? Do you picture a bed or a cross? Do you picture comfort or sacrifice? Has following him cost you anything? I think another major thing we go through when first following God and like just like taking it seriously is this whole worldview of life in moderation, life living life in the middle road. Just ask anyone who's tried to diet that way. It's the hardest way to live. You're like, got a block of chocolate in the house, and you're like, you know, I'm living this diet of moderation, you know? So I'm just going to have two squares, you know? So break off two squares, you have two squares, you put the chocolate back, it's the next day, you're feeling good, you're like, I only had two squares of chocolate, I'm such a good kid, like, I'm doing a great job. And then it's that next day, and then you're like, oh, it's around dessert time, you're feeling like some sugar. So you break off another two pieces, you have the two pieces of chocolate, put it away, and you're like, I'm doing it. I've got this on lock. Life in moderation, this diet, the easiest thing I've ever come across in my life. Why don't people live like this? But then you get to your next day, and then you open your mail, you got a speeding ticket in the mail, and you're like, oh, that sucks. So you have to pay your speeding ticket, lose $80 out of your bank account, you're like, oh, that's not, that's not a great time. And then you end up finding a coffee stain on your new shirt, and you're like, oh, okay, this day wasn't as great as I thought. So you get to the end of the day, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to cut myself some slack. Let's have four pieces of chocolate today, you know? Like, it was a tough day. I got a coffee stain, got a speeding ticket. Not a great time. So then you get to your next day, and it's even worse than the one before. You fail your presentation at work or at school. It just goes horribly. You forget what you're going to say. Awful. Then you get home. You find that the dog's vomited on the carpet. So now you have to clean up the dog vomit on the carpet. You're like, 
not a good time. And then you just find out that your internet is not working, so you can't even do anything fun. So then you find yourself 20 minutes later, just the whole block of chocolate's gone except for two pieces, and you're like, life in moderation did not work. What is going on? And you're just so disappointed in yourself. But when did we adopt this lifestyle, this worldview of living a life in moderation? The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches it's all in or nothing. John writes about this life in moderation being an issue in one of his letters to the churches in Revelation. It says in Revelation 3, 15 to 16, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth since you are like lukewarm water. Jesus doesn't say everything in moderation. He says that you have to go at everything in order to be his follower. Jesus didn't come to this earth so that he could tweak your personality a little bit, you know, like adjust your flaws, you know, fine-tune your manners, smooth out your rough spots. He came so that we could we wouldn't live a life of moderation, but that we would live a life of total transformation. Anna told us that love drives value and that God loves you so that gives you value and that we love God in return so that he has value in our lives. And I want to tell you that Value always determines the cost. And that our value comes from the cost of Jesus' life. Do you value him enough to pay a personal cost? I think when we start to talk about the cost of following God, we start to feel a little bit uncomfortable because... When we think cost of following Jesus, we think sacrifice. When we think the cost of following Jesus and we think what God did for us and sacrificing his son, so we think big cost. We think a large cost. We think a cost that is beyond what we can do. Because we look at what Christ did for us and we think that, man, that's that's the standard. That And it is the standard, but... It's not the cost that God is calling us to. You see, as Anna said earlier, love drives the value, and value determines, as Madison had just said, what price you will pay. And the thing is, is when love is driving the value, then love also covers the cost. The cost is not high when we love something that's of value. It's very easy. None, no one here in this room that are parents it, have a problem buying Christmas presents for their kids. Yes, you may set a budget and, and so that it's not ridiculous and over the top and crazy, yes? Even though they give you a list of a thousand things. But when you determine what you're going to buy for them and you determine what it is that you're going to get for them, the cost doesn't even really come into context because it's the love for what we value that enables us to pay the price. You see, I think half the time we struggle when it comes to the cost of following Jesus because we think sacrifice. We think it's a big thing. We think it's a large thing. I want to change your thinking just a little bit in the next two minutes this morning to have you understand that sacrifice is not the cost that God is looking for. When we start talking about the cost of following Jesus, God doesn't actually talk about sacrifice. Sacrifice uh, is a one-off event, and it's usually a big thing. What the Bible does teach us about the cost of following Jesus 
is in 1 Samuel 15, 22, where Samuel said, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. He's saying here, you can do the big burnt offering sacrifices, you can do the big massive sacrifice, but he said that's actually not the cost that God's looking from you. God's looking for the cost of obedience. And the cost of obedience is not a big event, but it's a daily walking. You know, I, I've been with my doctor a fair bit lately. Um, I don't know what's happened. I've got into my later 40s and my body seems to be falling apart on me or something. But I've been going to the doctors a lot lately and there's two things that he was concerned about. One was my high blood pressure and the other thing was a little bit of a cholesterol issue. And my, my dad's had high blood pressure his whole entire life and He's had three strokes and he's got heart issues. He's got, it's like, I, t- I said to mum the other day when I rang them up and she told me that what they were doing this week and it was like doctor's appointment on Monday, hearing appointment on Tuesday. If it wasn't for dad being sick, they'd have no social life, honestly. And, and so I, I've seen sickness my whole entire life. So as the doctor's telling me this stuff about the issues that I've got, I'm just like, you know, blah, 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 whatever, you know, kind of not really listening. And uh, he obviously realized that I wasn't really listening. And he says, hey, I'm like, don't hate me. He says, hey, you need to listen to me. He's German. So it's, hey, it's really aggressive. You need to listen to me. He said, you, you can understand. I don't want you to be like one of these guys that looks good on the outside, but it's not good on the inside and falls over. And first of all, I was stuck on the, on his whole thought that I looked good on the outside. I, I was kind of just stuck in that moment. I, I, thanks. You're, you're a great doctor. Christmas present for him. Because I don't want to be one of you people, one of these guys that looks good on the outside, but you're blocked up on the inside. He said, the thing is, is that people can look fit and they can run marathons, but if they don't do something about their cholesterol and their, and their, and their high blood pressure, the reality is, is that they can be walking along and just fall over. They can just be walking along and just fall over. And the thing is, is, is this, is that we can do that too, can't we? We can be, we can be walking along. We can be looking good on the outside, but be blocked up on the inside. We can be successful and fall over. We can be married and fall over. We can get promoted and fall over. We can be religious and fall over. Because the cost that you're prepared to pay has to happen in your heart, right? So the changes that I have to make in me, the doctor is saying to me, they're, they're changes that need to happen on the inside. The changes that need to happen around your cholesterol and your high blood pressure, there's changes that need to happen around your heart, Craig. But he said to me, the changes don't start in your heart, the changes start in your habits. You see, the change that we need in our hearts doesn't start in our hearts, it starts in our obedience. The blockage that we have when it comes to, yes, I value God, yes, I value what he's done for me, but I'm really struggling to pay the price or to pay a cost. I'm all kind of blocked up in here with 
with selfishness and stuff that I want for me. And, and I don't know, I appreciate that he died for my sins, but really I, I, I like my Saturdays and I like this and, and I, and I, I kind of like just coming to church once a month and, and we get blocked up on the inside. And, and then what we think when we hear a message like this is that if I do this big sacrifice, that'll kind of fix it up because that's how the Old Testament went. Yeah. That's how the law went. They sinned for a whole 12 months and then dad would bring the lamb. They'll do the big sacrifice and they'll be all good for another 12 months of sinning, yes? The sacrificial sacrifice, big moment. But the thing is, is that obedience is better than sacrifice because obedience is a daily habit that unblocks your heart so that you can walk out what God wants you to do. You see, the cost that he's asking you to pay based on what you value is not a big one, it's a daily one. It's doing all the little things. And so for me, the doctor first says to me, so we need to change your habits. For example, you need to start to go to the gym. You need to eat less carbohydrates. You know, and he starts telling me all these things that I need to do to get into a habit of. Why? Because the habit will then transform the heart. And once the heart's transformed, the habit really isn't a problem anymore because then I'm feeling better and I'm feeling healthier. And then the sacrifice of the gym really isn't a sacrifice anymore because I feel good for it. And so it is for us when we value something, when we understand what God has done for us and we value it. And then we, as Maddie said, we turn around and say, you know what? I'm going to pay the price of daily obedience to that. It doesn't become a sacrifice anymore because my life feels better because I've become unblocked and my heart's feeling better and I, and I just see things differently and my love for my wife and my kids and everything else has increased and life is going really, really well. Why? Because the habit of obedience changes the heart's condition. And that's the cost that God is asking us to do. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than than sacrifice, to understand that's love that drives value, that it's his love for you that drove the value of sacrificing his son on the cross, which to God was never a sacrifice to him because he understood that in that he would then get the relationship that he always wanted with you and with I. And it's the same for us, friend, as we go through and as we start to value what God values. The cost really isn't a cost because when we get to the other side of obedience, there's the fruitfulness of following him. The Bible says this, that as we obey him daily, pay that price daily, as we read his word, as we pray, as we do those things that we know that we need to do, as we pay the price for those things, that we know that at the end of that is a fruitfulness. It's a life full of love and joy and peace. It's a life full of the, the, the very fruits of the Spirit, of long-suffering, and all those things that we know makes our lives great. But it's not a big sacrifice, one-off, that God is looking for. It's a habit of obedience. And the habit of obedience is driven by the fact that we know that God loves us. Just like as Anna shared earlier about the two rings, I think it's such a great story because I guarantee you if I got her mum in front of me right now and I said to her, that'd be pretty difficult because she's with Jesus, but 
We could try. And I said to her, here's the new one worth $1,500 and here's the old one worth $50. I want to, I'll tell you what, if you want to buy them back, you can have the $50 one for $3,000 or you can have the $1,500 one for $50. Should pay $3,000 for the $50 one. Why? Because it's driven by love. The value of it is driven by the love of it. And so what happens with us is when we really understand what Christ has done for us, and, I, and I'm going through this process, and I'm trying to re-engage again with how I first felt about him when I really got saved. That first love, that, that how God just made everything wonderful. Can you remember that? When even the worst situations when you first got saved, you just saw them with rose-colored glasses. Everything just looked fantastic. Because I understand that his love for me drives the value of me but then because he values me so much, then my love for him drives the value of him so much. And then the cost of following him just really isn't a cost at all because it's driven by the value and the discomfort of following him really isn't uncomfortable at all because I feel comfortable in my obedience and in my following of him because it's not a big sacrifice. It's a daily habit which changes the condition of my heart which allows me to love him no matter what. And the cost is not a cost because the heart condition has been changed. Why don't we stand to our feet this morning? I just want you to think about, just for a moment, that scripture, for God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever would believe in him would not die, but would have eternal life from that day onwards. Not, not once you die. Eternal life isn't once you die. Eternal life is from the day that you believe in him. And I want you to think for a moment as we come into the season of Christmas and you think about, man, the value that God has placed on you, that he would have sent his son. Uh, it, it boggles my mind, that scripture that says, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, he valued us so much when we weren't even interested in him that he paid a price that was not really a price to him because he understood that on the other side was a relationship with you. And I want to ask you this this morning, when you think about that, is it really a price that we have to pay? Is there really a cost to it when we know on the other side of that is a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Is a relationship with the God who heals is a relationship with Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Is a relationship with the all-knowing God, the all-powerful God, the God that is for us and not against us, the God that never leaves us nor forsakes us. Is there really a cost even at all in following Him? Is there really even a discomfort at all in following Him when we understand we always end up in His presence? We always end up, even though we're not enough, we always end up in the right place at the right time in his presence, because when we obey him and follow him, we always end up in the right place. When we try to control our circumstances, we end up in the wrong place. But when we understand that he loves us and that love drives the value of us and that I'm valuable to him, then I can follow him in obedience because I know I'll always end up in the right place. Not actually really paying a price, but gaining so much more than I could ever dream of.